You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Yo, what's good? BU Podcast, your man Michael Arrington. I'm back in the back. Um, I got a special guest today. Her name is Jessica Lascano. She's a um, licensed um, a school psychologist, among other things. Man, she's a warrior in the fight for parent parental rights for children who receive services or what we know as special education. Um, she has a whole lot of stuff in her toolbox, man. Can't wait to get into this interview. I'm really excited about it. Um, some things that I'm passionate about. And um, a lot of this conversation will probably lead into um, educating people on what, you know, special education service is and um, and how if you have a student who is under an IEP, um, what you should ask for, um, what you should know and things of that nature. But in regards to special education, so I started out in special education in about was 1996, 1997. And so during that time, man, that was like the wave of all black boys were, you know, ED or what we call emotionally disturbed, right? So they had these classes called severely emotionally disturbed classes. And I started out as a, a special education aide, you know, either being a one-on-one for those types of students or, you know, providing classroom support for kids who... Uh, were in those segregated classrooms. And by segregated, I mean that it was just those types of kids in the classroom. So you got a classroom of maybe, you know, in between four and 14 kids who were either on the autism spectrum or um, had ADHD or ADD or ODD, which is uh, oppositional defiant disorder. Um, And so you had a lot of these different mental health issues in this one classroom and you always had this one teacher that had to deal with, you know, five to 10, you know, rambunctious kids with, you know, some type of disorder. And so I was one of the people to kind of help with that. And, um, because I was one of the few black men on campus and one of the few black men in special education at the time, I became a very, very useful, uh, asset, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, I ended up leaving, the school system in 2003 and worked in probation where some of that same skill set kind of relived itself. And I sat, found myself at IEPs again and um, kind of just measuring different behaviors. And then I became like a behavioral specialist where I kind of can recognize and diagnose behaviors based off the of things that I've seen. And um, a lot of it wasn't training and that kind of prompted me to get to where I'm at. So um, when I was in special ed at the school district, I met a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Abdullah Hassan. Um, he became like a mentor to me. He was kind of an older gentleman. He was like my father's age, maybe slightly older, maybe slightly younger. But he, he took me under his wing. He told me then, man, he told me in like 1997, you know, I had to be 23 years old. He's like, man, you got the gift, bro. Like, this should be your field, man. You need to go to school, get your master's, get your doctorate. You could do what I do, man. You could do it better than I can right now. You don't even have training and, and education in it. And, um, I didn't really take them serious. You know what I'm saying? I, I come from, you know, some of that childhood trauma kicked in where I didn't believe that I could be as good as he said. You know what I'm saying? I never really had that from my parents. never really had that from my family where they gave you that level of confidence that I can do anything. Um, and so, you know, I dabbled in music for a while and worked at, you know, for the probation department for a little while, man. And I find myself back in the school system where um, some of the things are still the same, you know, um, they're not putting all black boys and black girls in ED anymore, emotionally disturbed. It's now under a new umbrella called OHI, which is other health impaired. And so you're able to tuck ADHD, you know, bipolar disorder and those types of things. You kind of can tuck that into the other health impaired um, and still segregate these students. Um, and that's the sad part. So um, one of the things that I try to do for the work I do now is I like to really honestly provide equity for students, like whatever it is that they need to be successful. I try to provide that, be it food, be it clothes, be it whatever. I try to provide that or I try to be that person on campus that 
they can have a brave space with and just kind of talk to. Um, so and that's also important dealing with some of their social emotional learning and some of their, you know, social emotional health. You know, um, especially after this pandemic, um, it's just a lot of different behaviors, a lot of different um, things that kind of manifested itself with that isolation. Right. Um, as a society, we stay busy constantly to the point to where you never really get a chance to slow down. And so when everything kind of slowed down and shut down, um, people were have to they were stuck with having to deal with one another. And that was difficult for a lot of people. So there's a lot of a lot of couples were struggling and domestic violence numbers have gone up and suicide numbers have gone up and um Anxiety has gone up. People have lost jobs and financial statuses have changed. And, you know, people had to move or had to move in with other people because it was just it was tough for the last, you know, couple of years. And so look at like kind of at the end of this whole pandemic, hopefully we're at the end of it. Um, you're starting to see some of these behaviors manifest themselves in students. Right. So now they're back in this social mosh posh of you know, dealing with social media and societal standards and just adolescence. And it's become a lot on a campus, you know, and so um, so people struggle. And so, um, you know, what are we what ha- what kind of services do we have on campuses that can help students prosper? And at, at the same time, what kind of supports do we have for families? Um you know, because we can have a utopian school, but they still got to go back home to the horror, whatever that is when they get home. So how could we how could the school district the community, the parents and the children all kind of work in, in tandem to be able to help kids be successful? Right. And I think um, the key to that is, is having a healthy community, having a healthy home and then then having a healthy school. So um, but. That's just, you know, some of my thoughts on that. We get into this interview with Jessica. I cannot wait. Um, it's the BU Podcast, your man, Mike Arrington. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. So that's right. We're back. The BU Podcast of Mike Arrington here. I am with my special guest, um, Jessica Lascano. She is a um, licensed school psychologist, so we're going to get into some things. So first of all, tell the people who you are and kind of what you do. Hi, um, my name is Jessica Lascano, and I am a uh, school psychologist in schools. Currently, my role is in a juvenile hall. So I work two juvenile halls, one in the high desert and one down in San Bernardino. Um, And I do that through the San Bernardino superintendent of schools. But then I also do some site assessments and I'm a professor as well. And sometimes I help with like parent training and social skills groups and things like that. Um, And yeah, I'm in my 18th year as an educator, used to be a teacher, and I'm also credentialed as a counselor as well as a school psychologist. And I'm licensed with the state so I can do private practice assessment. And I just became a board certified behavioral analyst. Oh, wow. So you got a whole nice toolbox set up for you. <laughs> yeah, it worked out really nicely, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Um, I didn't know you worked at a juvenile hall. I did 17 years, 16 and a half, really, um, at Central Juvenile Hall in downtown LA, um, down at Old East Lake Court. Um, so basically with the assessments and you work mostly with special ed, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. The majority of kids I work with are either in special education or getting assessed for special education. Okay, cool. So let me ask you this. Um, First of all, why is it? Because I know a lot of your posts, I kind of follow you on Instagram and a lot of your posts is about kind of letting parents know what their rights are and things of that nature. So why is it important that parents know their rights in going into an IEP? You know, I think like it, it is such a, first of all, confusing process. Like the way I think about it is you know, when, when I go to court, like if I had to go to court for something or like in the past, I went to court for um, like child custody for my older son. And it was so confusing. Like just, you know, I, I just had no idea what does this papers mean? What is the judge saying? What's this different language? And that's what I think parents feel like in this process. Matter of fact, when I started teaching, no one really taught me about IEPs. I had to learn it on my own. And it was just so confusing. And there was just so many pieces to it. And so I think if we can educate parents and really get them the information that they need regarding what the IEP is, what their rights are, um, you know, how they can get their needs met, I think that that really helps them to come better prepared to the meeting and to be a, a more active participant. And also, like, 
it lowers their guard because I know for me, like when I know how something's going to go, I can kind of relax and get into the moment of that particular event. But if I have no clue then I'm tense and anxious and I'm coming in and um, I'm, I'm spending a lot of brain power on just trying to understand what's being said and not able to participate. So I want parents to participate and be present in the moment and we can help them do that by getting them the information ahead of time. Yeah, correct. Cause like I've, I've been on thousands of IEPs from the mid nineties of then I did, a, I did a lot when I was in, um, in the probation realm, I always had to kind of be, you know, speak on the behalf of the student. Um, cause it was usually a surrogate or some type of, uh, some person there to kind of, uh, be kind of the guardian. Um, and I think it's important that parents know not only what the rights are, but what the school's policy is in regards to providing support. Cause I think, so I think a lot of times parents aren't aware of all the supports that the school districts have in regards to providing just fate for, um, for students in general, but then, you know, kids who receive services in particular. And I think it's important um, people like you kind of be at the IEP to kind of one, explain it. Cause it's a lot of mumbo jumbo on the paper, right? There's yeah. a lot of, a lot of big words and a lot of this and a lot of that. A lot of it is contractual uh, speech. So that's, you know, difficult for a layman to kind of understand what all these things mean. And then we talk in acronyms, right? Like I just said, FAPE, right? But no, most yes. parents don't know what FAPE is. So, um, and it's the, with free access to public um, education. So like a lot of parents just kind of need to know that. So let me ask you this. So how do you feel like we could promote parental rights better? I know we send out, you know, emails and, and, and literature, but it's still the same kind of, you know, education jargon. So how could we better promote that? Or how could a school district or a school in particular better promote that? Yeah, it's funny you ask. Uh, next week I have a conference I'm going to present at. And part of my presentation um, on the second day goes into some ideas to get schools to help parents to come more prepared to the IEP. Um, and so one of the ideas I had was like a boot camp. So essentially like making a recording that you give to every parent who's new to the IEP process, where you take them through all the pieces of the IEP, you break down what assessment is going to look like, you know, because you can give general information, even though every IEP and assessment is unique, you can give general information about like, this is what a standard score is. Here's what a T-score is. Here's some tests you might hear about. And these tests measure this, this, and this. Um, here's the pieces of an IEP. This is what people are going to say. This is what present levels means here. So you can expect to be there, et cetera. I think if we just took some time to invest in creating some sort of an educational series um, for parents as districts or as county offices of ed that we could give to parents ahead of the IEP, I think it would really help them to show up and come prepared. And I like the video format because they can do it at their leisure. It doesn't require them to come in and, and spend time. Um, so like for me, I know when I'm learning about stuff, a lot of times I'm driving, I'm cooking, you know, I'm doing something else at the same time as I'm listening right. and my makeup on. I always do that, like listen to podcasts, getting ready in the morning. So you know, if we could do that for parents, it would be really helpful. And I think if districts just had a general policy of like, okay, my parent is, you know, might get their kid might get an IEP, we're going to give them this education series ahead of time. Right. So I, I feel like in my capacity now, um, as a therapeutic behavioral strategist, when I do go to IEPs, I don't go to many anymore. But when I do go to IEPs, they're more, um, I'm kind of more of the, the conduit between the student parent and the school. So I'm kind of more or less you know, interpreting some of the things that are said and making sure that the parents fully understand what they had just, you know, discussed. A lot of times it's like, oh yeah, so he doesn't meet his A through G standards and start talking all this stuff. And so uh, parents are kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah. And not really have a full grasp of what it is that was said. So um, I think it's vital that um, we do that. And so in, in regards to me saying A through G, um, why are students that receive services some of the class, especially in the SDC setting, um, not given SDC credit or sorry, A through G credit. Um, do you have an answer for that or do you think it should be that way or what's your opinion on that? You know, I, I do have an answer and it's because it, technically speaking, if they're in like what we call SAI, which is specialized academic instruction, like SAI can be one period of services, you know, 50 minutes, a lot of high school kids get that 50 minute period where they're getting just like support for other classes that are, we call them general education. But when they have more than that, like some more minutes of SAI, um, 
what happens is it starts to creep into their core curriculum. So like, mm-hmm. for example, SAI English, so specialized academic instruction English or SAI math. Um, and so then when their core curriculum has that SAI label on it, that's a hint that uh, the curriculum has been modified in some way. Um, and because it's modified, it's not meeting that same rigor that the A2G standards would have. And so what we really need to do, in my opinion, is we should be doing more of the push-in where kids are you know, able to attend a general education class setting and we're pushing in as special educators and helping that general education teacher to uh, accommodate the students and help to access the curriculum with accommodations rather than modifying everything. Because right. unfortunately, what I have seen in my career, and like I said, I was a teacher before, is that there's a really big difference in some SAI classes versus others. Like I know in my class, when I was teaching, like my kids were learning, you know, we're, we're uh, going through the curriculum, et cetera. But I know in other classes, it was very unfortunate. Like there were kids that were just literally doing packets, worksheets, teachers reading a newspaper. So there's such variance um, that it's unfortunate when kids miss that opportunity. So I say, let's do more pushing anyway, you know? Right. I'm more of a, um, with the all inclusive push, like, um, I started working in special ed in the nineties. I'm talking, I want to say 96, 97. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a real big push then for just getting all black and brown kids in, in the ED classes. Right. So it was mm-hmm. the STC class and that, that level of segregation and the school that I worked at had a, like their whole section of where the, the, the special ed students were, were in a segregated part of the school. So I didn't like that too much. Yeah. And so my goal was, at the very initial IEP in sixth grade, I will tell the parent, okay, by the time your kid is in the eighth grade, he won't be in my class, but once a day. So the goal is to get them out and get them that, you know, build of, you know, trying to incorporate them into what we consider the general ed population because they don't need to be segregated. You know, there's a yeah. certain stigma that comes with that. And um, that stigma brings down self-esteem and things of that nature. So um, I think it's important, but why do you think schools teachers or administrators don't really promote equitable service via IEP or just in general? Well, you know, it's like there's a bigger problem that we have in education, particularly, you know, in California is where I see it. I don't know how other states are, but I would say it's an American problem. Uh, We do teaching by age, right? So, you know, you're a kindergartner, you start school at this age and, you know, we kind of keep kids grouped in that age and grade, you know, sort of, um, I don't know what you call it, but like, that's our, our uh, criteria, right? Right. But kids, we know they have different levels. And so you can take a fifth grade class and you're going to have some kids that are reading at the first grade level, some kids that are reading at the high school level and some kids all in between that. Right. And so one thing that I think we should do in education is first of all, uh, take these kids and group them differently by ability, right? We got to get rid of that whole notion of like, well, you're just going to keep moving. Because what happens is those kids that are reading at the first grade level, they lose instruction the whole time because they're they're not, it's right. over their head. So they're, they're losing everything, um, all of their time, all of their engagement, all of the access to the curriculum. So there's that issue. And I think that schools, we're just so used to this model. We have to really think outside of the box, you know, in education, we're so like uh, engaged and tied into what has come before. And so many people are just like, so afraid to shake things up and change. But I think if we do that, we would see a lot of gains. Secondly, a lot of our teaching programs. And again, I told you I'm a professor too. And so like, I remember uh, when I was a student in my master's program, you know, some of the things I learned and there was not a huge emphasis on like using scientific methods to teach. Right. Right. And so a lot of our teaching is not really based on like a scientific sort of approach, but you can take a scientific sort of approach, which uh, if you use applied behavior analysis, ABA, you can actually use these techniques called precision teaching and direct instruction, which really Uh, break down the skills to like minute little pieces, like reading, for example, just break it down, break all the skills down to little pieces, teach the kids those pieces very fluently. And then now they can read. You can do that with math, with reasoning, um, et cetera, but we don't teach that way. Right. Right. We we, teachers don't teach that way. And they're not taught to teach that way to be fair to them, but Mm -hmm. we're losing a lot of kids. This is crazy. And I'm sure you saw it when you were in classrooms, you get kids who are in these classrooms where they're having SAI all day, specialized academic instruction all day. And you're talking with them. You're like, you're an intelligent kid. You're really smart. You got a lot to offer. Why are you reading at the first grade level? Well, the truth is that they never got the gap filled in. 
So right. they just stayed stagnant at that level because no one ever went back, remediated those skills. And you could see it when they're reading or when they're doing math, there's like gaps, big gaps. So I think in education, we're afraid to have that conversation, but I don't know why we don't do it because you know what, monetarily, we can allocate funds toward that. We can right. teach teachers in a different way. We just need to think outside the box and a couple resources for people if they want to learn more about that look up fit learning, F I T learning. That's where my son started going. And I'll tell you this, and you might want to do a podcast with the person here in Claremont who runs that. Mm -hmm. Um, she is amazing. She took Augie from reading below the kindergarten level to he can read at the fourth grade level now in about a year, um, with using these techniques and he has dyslexia and he, it was a hard time for him to learn how to read. Um, and he made amazing gains. And the person who created fit learning is a BCBA doctorate level. So you call it a BCBA D so board certified behavioral analyst D and her name is uh, Dr. Kimberly Nix Barron. She's got a book. Um, I like her a lot. I think her book may be a little bit uh, hard for educators to swallow because it's very direct. I think that we could be a little more uh, kind in sending that message and partnership rather than more like direct. Her book is very direct. I like it. I don't mind mm-hmm. it, but I think people might get turned off sometimes, but just get through that and see the message, which is direct instruction, persistent teaching. Let's rethink the way that we're approaching education. Right. I, I agree wholeheartedly because I feel like this, this post-World War II model of, of education that we're still stuck in, right? Having kids sit in rows and you have to learn these classes to get these jobs, right? And so those jobs back then, after the you know post-World War II were all for like refactory and refinery jobs, right? Well, these kids won't be working at refineries or factories anymore because that's not a thing. So Absolutely. how are we getting them ready specifically? I know dealing with some of the high school students, I got 12 graders that are terrified to graduate because they have no idea what they're going to do after graduation, right? And so that means we didn't, as a, as a system, didn't prepare this kid for adulthood. Right. Which is what absolutely this should be about. Right. And and be more specific to the learning needs of every student, you know, not just the kids with, you know, to receive services, of course, them, too. But every student kind of suffers in this this transition of education where we're at because it's so antiquated and it's so outdated. So I'm glad you said that. And I'll definitely look up um, that book and try to you know order it. So let me ask you this. Why is it in general, Ed? Teachers have a specific credential that kind of matches their degree, right? So you got biology teachers that majored in biology, whereas special ed teachers, they kind of teach multi-subjects. You know, they may be, you know, an English major, but they got to teach all subjects. Why is that a thing in special ed? You know, I I don't know. And let me tell you a little quick story. This is really crazy. When I was a teacher, um, I taught in these programs. People may have heard of them before in the high desert. They're pretty popular, like the success program or AIM is what it's called now. And basically it's like in lieu of expulsion or in lieu of getting moved to a more restrictive environment, you can, you know, move kids through the IEP process to this behavior class located on the comprehensive campus. So I was a teacher for that program for several years. And what happened with me is the district told me, um, hey, if you pass the C set and you pass it in multiple subjects, you can you'll be able to teach all your core classes with your kids. So I did that, no problem. Uh, passed it, and then I got um, a updated a set. Of, uh, uh, excuse me, an updated set of information where um, you know the district said, "Oh, sorry, we made a mistake." Now this whole no child left behind. This was way back in the days, and so they said you got to get. Uh, your CSET pass in every single subject you teach, which there's no way. I mean, there's no way I was ever going to pass a math CSET. I mean, that is really hard. Like that, you have to be a math major, a a science CSET, a PE CSET. And these CSETs are three subtests each. So they're not a joke. Like they're really hard. And so um, I never did it because I was moving on to school psychology and I I just kind of had to like feign like I was doing it. Like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Um, And then I moved on. And now what happened with me with student loan forgiveness, there's a provision. So a lot of people don't know this either, but there's teacher loan forgiveness. And if you work in a low income or in a special education setting, you can get, I think it's up to $17,000 of loan forgiveness. This is separate than PSLF, totally separate. There's a little uh, paperwork you can do, but you have to work in one of those schools and you got to be highly qualified. Well, my district from back in the days will not sign my paper to say I was highly qualified because I never passed a CSET in all those subjects. Essentially, um, you know, what they're doing is punishing special education teachers who got, you know, ability to teach in these multiple subjects um, by saying, hey, you have to be qualified in every subject. And that's not even the case anymore. It's changed over time. But to get back to your question, 
Um, I don't know why that happens. And it's unfortunate because I will say I was no expert in any of those one areas. I just kind of threw things together. But I think that um, to me, that kind of speaks to not to be pessimistic, but like the lack of respect, right? Like the lack of really holding these students in the same regard as all other students. Why should they get a subpar, you know, uh, teacher who doesn't have a thorough knowledge of the subject matter? Um, And you see that, you see that in the classrooms. Like I said, when I was teaching, I would see that. And it's a very big difference between the teacher that teaches general education English and the teacher who's teaching special education English, who's giving them packets. That's not apples to apples, you know, and that's, that's not okay, which again, right, takes us back to, you know what, get rid of those SAI classes and take these kids to general ed as much as possible. Exactly. And then, you know, bring in the RSP or the teacher support. So you have somebody as an expert in special education and how to deal with behaviors and deal with, you know, different diagnoses. And then you have an expert on the actual subject itself. Yes, absolutely. That would be be appropriating funds in the correct way, uh, in my opinion. So, yeah. uh, So how far do you think are we from ridding uh, education of the phrase or the term special education? Like usually in my district, we say students that receive services or students Mm -hmm. who receive services. Um, It's because it's such a negative connotation to say special Mm -hmm. education nowadays. How far Mm -hmm. are we from that? You know, I don't know, because I'll tell you this. um, When I was teaching RSP, SDC, those are still used. And now technically they're not supposed to be used. People still say them, but like they're, it's all SAI. So that's only in the span of from beginning of teaching. And that change came maybe, you know, probably like at least I would say eight years ago where the technicality changed or maybe 10 years ago. So within eight years of getting into teaching, we went from not using those or using those words to not using them. So I wouldn't be surprised, especially with the way that our culture is moving, where we're calling things out a little more, that we don't get rid of that term, you know, in the next few years and and say something different. You're right. Like, you know, more uh, something that has not that negative connotation. Right. Um, Right. I know like some people on Facebook don't like sped. Like I know that like people will say sped and there's a lot of psychologists in my Facebook groups that don't like that. I have said sped. I never thought it was offensive, but they say it's a lot of kids use it to like make fun of each other. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always been and even in the nineties, it was kind of like what this is, you know, the, those kids. Right. And so what I try to tell parents and even students that, you know, special education is not a destination. It's a service. That's right. Right. So we can move to you. You don't have to go to it. You know what I'm saying? We can bring it to you. So yeah, we can bring it in a general ed classroom because it's a service, right? It's just, it's really just a service and trying to get kids to understand that the benefits of being a student who receives services is, is major. You got workability, you got a lot of different, you know, things that will carry over that will help students succeed. And they can still do that in a gen ed setting, but for some reason, it's I've, even schools as a system, they they want to send kids to special education as opposed to give kids the services that come with special education. So um, do you think the assessments as a psychologist, you think the assessments are culturally viable? So it depends, right? Like I think what I would say about those assessments and in my experience is that, you know, like we have Larry P. You heard of Larry P. before? Mm-hmm. So Larry P, the ruling, and so everybody thinks it's like a law, but it's not really a law. It's like a case law. And so Larry P basically says there was a little boy and he was put into these EMR classes. It was called educably mentally retarded. I say that word because that's what it was called, not because I'm using it as a slur, but that EMR class, he was put there and it was because he couldn't read. It wasn't because of his cognitive ability. Um, And so, you know, the test that he was given were said to be culturally biased for him, particularly on the verbal portion. So he came out lower than he really was um, cognitively. And then academically, you know, he couldn't read. So they popped him in that class and it was very segregating. Um, And so that's where this ruling came from, you know, for our African-American kids in California, we can't give these intelligence or cognitive tests or anything that purports to measure that. Now, the thing about that is, is that I think that that was a good thing. I think it was absolutely necessary, especially at that time, because seems that, um, you know, in that time that Larry P was going through school, um, there was just a lot of prejudice, segregation, et cetera. As we move forward, what I see, like, at least with like, you know, Latino, Black people, um, we're coming up just to, I just see it like in California, like we're, we're changing, right? The demographic is changing. So 
um, our kids are having access like we didn't have. Right. Right. So like now, like, for example, like if my son wants to become a graphic artist, I probably have a few friends I could reach out to and connect him with. right? Right. Whereas like my parents couldn't do that for me in that way. Right. And so the whole point of that to say is like, so now our kids have more access. So I think a lot of these tests, yeah, they're biased, but you know who they tend to be biased against really is the kids that don't have experiences. So you're like, for me, I'm talking about poor kids. So it doesn't matter the right. race. It's like, did you have access to that experience? Um, right. Cause even when I took some of those tests, like I know there was things I got wrong because I had never seen that before. I'd never been exposed to that. So I think, um, we're doing a good job and we probably need to keep doing it. We need to be very careful on using these tests for any kid, but more than race, we need to think about language, right? So like ELL learners, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, parental education levels, what kind of exposure have these kids had? Because essentially what an IQ test does, a lot of these vocab pieces, they really just tell you how much have you been you know, how much vocabulary has been used in your home right. and how much exposure have you had? That's right. literally what the vocab pieces of a lot of these tests do. Cause that's called, there's two kinds of intelligence. There's crystallized and there's fluid. And right. that intelligence is called crystallized intelligence. It's what we acquire in our lifetime and crystallized intelligence, verbal intelligence can change with experience and exposure. Um, I know for me, it changed. It changed tremendously as I went from high school to even college and now even in college to adulthood. Right. But fluid intelligence, that's our puzzles, our nonverbal. Um, that's, you know, classic scientist kind of intelligence that you think of, you know, right. that's a little different. But I think, but intelligence, most of our measures are both kinds of intelligence together. They come together to give right. you a full intelligence. So I think, again, like, you know, yeah, like we need to be careful um, for sure, but not just for our African American kids, but for all kids, because not African-American kids aren't the only ones that are going to show up messed up on these tests, right? Our ELL kids, again, our kids who don't have ex- uh, experience exposure, who never been to a museum, who have parents right. haven't talked in big words, they're not going to have that either. Right. And in fact, again, with back to the first point, because our demographics are changing, I feel like there's like, I just see so many more professionals that are people of color, just like right. in general, like I go to a conference, I see so many people that look like me, um, you know, that look like my kids. Right. And so I think like, it's changing, like, like you're more likely to have a Latino kid or a black kid who scores very high in IQ tests nowadays, but right. back in the day that was different because we didn't have the same exposure opportunity and access. Right. So. Yeah. I feel like, you know, those types of tests can be, um, culturally biased, but you, know, like I said, it's exposure, right. It's to, to, what have you been exposed to, you know, and a lot of times it's really social economical more so than it's actually race. Um, cause we have kids in our district cause we're disproportionately, you know, you know, black and white, right. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. have a high Latino population. So, mm-hmm. um, so some of the white kids who they're probably one of the, some of the poorest in our district, they score low on these tests too. And they're always getting put in ED too. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. um, so it, it matters, um, a, a level of exposure. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, like, I know with my children in particular, my own children, um, I've never talked baby talk to them. I talk mm-hmm. to them like I would talk to adults. So what that has done is that their reading levels have always been pretty high because there's a certain level of explanation when I use, you know, certain words. And um, a lot of it just comes because I talk to adults and, and older kids all the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know how to tone it down for for toddlers. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um and but I just have to explain, you know, whatever whatever word this word means, or do you understand what this word means, and kind of give them then that definition. So when they do take these tests, they're kind of up to par because they've heard this language before mm-hmm. and they've been exposed mm-hmm. to museums and things like that. And that's where it's at, you know. I think it's it's the really the exposure. And that's why like I'm trying to get a lot of districts to take their kids on outings, man. Take yes. their, their mod severe classes out out of their city into another city and they can get exposed to these types of things. They never get to go. Mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm, in my, and like mm-hmm. in my district, I'm sponsoring 10 kids in our mild severe class to go to prom. Oh, nice. Didn't even think they got, they got to go to prom, mm-hmm, right? That's mm-hmm. how segregated they are in just a regular environment. And so they need that exposure. Right. And so I'm gonna make sure the aides get to go and we're going to pay for everything, a, a, a party bus so they can all oh, go. That's so cool. And so they can have that exposure. Cause I, I what kid wouldn't want to go to the prom in high school. 
Like yeah. that's what it's all about. So um, just a few more questions. Um, do you think there's an issue with the policy in special ed or the practice of schools and districts? Is it more of a policy versus practice type of thing or what? Mm, I think it's both, you know, like, okay, for me, like idea, idea, it's like um, Individuals with Disability Education Act, you might hear called IDEIA 2004, because that was the Improvement Act that came out in 2004. First of all, it needs to be updated, you know, and um, a lot of times, like, I don't like the discrepancy model for specific learning disability, I have to use it because that's just what my job chooses. And you got to go with what your district says, you're not independent. Um, but I don't really like that method, nor do I like the patterns of strengths and weakness method, because essentially those two methods really, to me, are not scientifically based. I prefer response to intervention where we get in there, we screen all kids and we give interventions. Right. So going back to like, what do kids need individually rather than just throwing right. whatever out and seeing who catches it? Um, and so. I think that's definitely a policy with idea that needs to change. Like idea leaves it up to the States and the state leave it up to the districts. And, you know, I just think there's too much flexibility with that. And we go with non-scientific methods often. Um, So policy wise, we need to like probably integrate more science and database decision-making into idea as part of like, you know, the guidance of what to do. Um, Then as far as school districts, yeah, I definitely think there also is a policy and procedure problem Um, with school districts, because a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of folklore in education. And what I mean by that is a lot of word of mouth, right? I told you that you told me, all of a sudden, you know, it's like telephone, and the message really got totally warped along the way. And, you know, some crazy stuff that people say, like, oh, we we don't do that. We don't do uh, such and such. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the legal thing. That's the law. Right. That's the law. Exactly. Like you don't get to choose that. Right. Um, and so I think to me, what I always tell people, I say, look, you can have your policy, you can have your procedure, you can listen to me. However, at the end of the day, what you need to do is go read stuff, go read yeah. articles, go read what the law says directly, go read case law interpretations. That's how you learn and change and be better and take this information and make your district better and change your policies. Um, because a lot of times there's the policy and then there's the policy. You get what I'm saying? Like there's right. the uh, official policy and then there's what we really do. Right. So it's like, you and, know, and I've been in that. a lot of litigation where um, even though your policy said this and you've been practicing this, if you've practiced this more than you do what the policy says, they will, the law will interpret your practice as your policy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and hold you to the fire. And so when I have professional developments with, with different teachers and different administrators, I'm quick to point that out. Like, this is what this looks like if you do not do these things. This is what the policy says. And so what I think drives me a little nuts in education is that for as bright as everybody is supposed to be, right? Because we're all mm-hmm. educators, right? It, we never update what we know. That's right. right? That's right. Like, these kids, they don't change, but we do, right? So I started in education when I was 23. I'm 47 now. So I can't use what I knew at 23, right. 30 years later. You know that's, what I mean? That's so, so right. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's important that we can constantly update not only our knowledge of what's going on, but also our knowledge of, of that policy needs to change. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, ID or uh, no child left behind, which is called something else, the like ESSA or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was originally built from Lyndon Johnson back in the sixties. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they just hunkered it down in the 90s to say, OK, this fits this. And then oh, Obama came around in that era and we did this. Right. But Obama's hasn't been in office in eight years. Mm-hmm. So look how gradual things have changed in the last eight years. No better fact. Let me rephrase that. Look how things have drastically changed in the last sure. three. Sure. Right? Sure. Nin- ni- 2019 things. Oh, were my totally gosh. Different. Yeah. And then the pandemic hit and we're at a whole different level. And I'm sure you're seeing a whole different level of 100%. behaviors now that we didn't even account for in 2019. So 100%. everybody needs to always stay updated in their knowledge and in their knowledge base and continue to learn. Like educators should always want to learn, right? You're a scholar. So your job is to consistently learn. So That's you can point. The, the, the future. So yeah. All right, lastly, what I'd like to ask all my guests is if you had, if you could pick five people to have dinner with dead or alive, who would they be? 
Ooh, okay. Five people have dinner with Dead or Alive. Um, okay. I love this man, Jose Martinez Diaz. Uh, he is, um, he's passed away during the, I think 2020, late 2020. Um, and he is a board certified behavioral analyst, doctorate level, and also clinical psychologist. And he created a lot of programs and he was in Florida and that man has some passion for kids, um, for adults, for anyone, even, uh, people who other people might consider like just, you know, throwaway. I don't know how else to say that. Like just, that's a very rude thing to say, but I, that's how people might describe these people that he loved and he just was willing to get in there and help people, you know, regardless. So yeah, I, I just, met him. I was on you, did you really? Yeah. Oh so, my gosh. Really? Yeah. So you said that it kind of made me feel some kind of way. Cause I remember <gasps> him and I, I did hear that he passed. So, um, his condolences to him, but he was awesome. He was awesome. Yeah. Amazing man. Amazing man. And just a passion, you know, just like, Oh God, my heart just like swells when I think of him. So I would have, uh, definitely have, did you say lunch or dinner? I can't remember. Uh, dinner, but you know, lunch <laughs> is- whatever, you know, have a meal. Um, so him, and then let's see, okay. This Dr. Kimberly Nix Barons. I just think she's a super intelligent lady. She's also a BCBAD. She's the one who came up with fit learning. When I heard her lecture, I was like, you know, just totally fangirling over her. Like, man, this lady is incredible. Um, incredible. Kobe, man, Kobe is just, oh, again, another one, like my heart, just like, I just like say, oh, cause I'm just like, can't believe he died like that. Like, what right. was that? Like, that is, that was the kickoff, right. To 2020. Right. Like, it was like that know, happened and then COVID and we haven't been the same since. We haven't been the same since. It was like <laughs> some kind of mess up in the universe when Kobe died, but right. I mean, he's just incredible. Like, just like what an athlete, what an incredible person, you know, just the dedication that he has, just what a role model. So love Kobe. Um, let's see two more. So I would say maybe, um, maybe like magic Johnson, another one who's just like incredible, despite like things going on in his life that were, you know, career enders for a lot of people, he just kept going. And not only did he keep going, but like business wise, he's so smart and intelligent, has made all these investments and just a really smart, smart man. So I really think like, yeah, I look up to him a lot. And then my last one would maybe be, um, I had to think about that. You know, I'm not really like a good on keeping up with stuff, you know, but you know, yeah. okay. This is going to sound crazy, especially because, you know, he's just doing some stump stuff that's insane right now, but Kanye, because I feel like, you know, I, I loved Kanye when Kanye came out with his first album. Um, I was like hooked. I was going through a lot in college and uh, I just loved his album and just the grit that he had. There's like one particular song um, on that first album where he, you know, he has that little lyric, like I could let these dream killers kill my self-esteem or use my arrogance as esteem to power my dreams. Right. Um, and that to me, like that song um, just really like helped me a lot, like through my life at that time. And you know, I think Kanye is a true artist, despite, you know, whatever else might be going on with him personally. Um, I think that there's good in him. I think his mom really helped him a lot. I feel like she kept him grounded and right. losing his mom was probably very traumatic for him, right. especially in the way that he lost her, because it was like, you know, from what I understand, he was encouraging that, which I get. He was trying to do something nice as a son. Like, I love you, mom. You, you know, you want to look good. Come on, let's do this. And then that right. happened. So tragically. And then, of course, you know, just getting tied up in the family there with the Kardashians. Like, right. I don't think they're bad people, but I think like it's just some, different. Some strange stuff happens when you marry yeah. one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's just a different dynamic right. that maybe he he didn't know. And then now it's like the desperation he has for his family. It's just my heart breaks right. for him. I, I don't mean, know I think, if you saw the uh, documentary on Netflix. I haven't seen it yet. I want to sit down and watch it. I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah. And so I have a very, very sordid history with, with Kanye West. Um, so when you watch this documentary, there's a young man in it by the name of 3H. He mm-hmm. was his manager. 3H mm-hmm. used to manage me. Oh, and wow. he left me for this artist out of Chicago named Kanye West. Oh, wow. So, so but I never like hated Kanye West. Like I love his music. I love this production and all that type of stuff. I can't really say that I'm a super fan of his music now, but the first two albums, he was, he was on point, but so I've always had a weird, and then, you know, especially as of late, you know, some of the comments he's made and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I struggled to watch it, but I, I decided, decided to sit down and watch it. And I, I thoroughly loved it. One, because it took me back to that, that time period. Cause he has all this footage from the early two thousands, early nineties or late mid, late, mid to late nineties. Mm-hmm. That was an era that we kind of forget about now. Cause you kind of look at where rap is at now and it's way in a different space, but 
you can see like the Talib Kweli's and the most deafs and mm-hmm. even Dave mm-hmm. Chappelle's and all these different people mm-hmm. that they were all on the come up at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now you see some 20, 30 years later, you see these people at this, the level that they're at. It was good to see when it was good that he archived all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And you get to see the many sides of Kanye and you do get to see his mom is in it heavy in the first couple episodes mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. get to see the relationship that they had. And now it makes more sense that, he struggled when she passed Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, she was the mm -hmm. only one that can kind of reel him in for sure yeah 100 100 percent. and i i i empathize with that you know because like my older son is kind of you know does some stuff that's just like you need to get reeled in and i feel like it's like yeah that same relationship where she she never gave up on him you know right and she always you know there was a quote she said in it that she was like you know um when people see a giant, but what does this giant see in the mirror? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he just sees himself, but people see him as a giant. And so that was able, he was able to resonate with that mm-hmm. to like remain as arrogant as you feel like you need to be, mm-hmm. but know that there's a time to humble that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. not everybody's going to care that you're a giant, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. I think he struggles with that now because he doesn't mm-hmm. have anybody that, he can, that can really rein him in, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Because he's surrounded by so many people that need him. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So that's always difficult too. And so some of the things that I do with artists on the mental health realm is to kind of get them, because being an artist is tough. It's it's one of the toughest mm-hmm. business. And it's, it's, it's hard to be so vulnerable to put your heart on the sleeve and have people critique you for a living. Mm-hmm. You know? and so mm-hmm. people don't realize how difficult that is. Talented be talent be damn. It's mm-hmm. still a mm-hmm. difficult, you know, it's still a difficult realm. So, and then fame is even worse. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine every move that I made being documented and, and analyzed mm-hmm. under a microscope. Mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine that. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it's a difficult space to be in, but um but yeah, I definitely, man, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming in and, and kind of spreading some light in education. Um, you are a life force to a, so many. Um, I can just tell by the things you post. Uh, I'm a super duper fan of your Instagram page. Um, oh, thank you. Super duper fan of you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we kind of, you know, were able to stay in contact, even though we just met via, you know, uh, social media. But um, keep continue being a warrior for the people that you serve. And um, I will definitely be in touch and I look forward to like getting to do some work with you in the future. Yeah. Let me know. I'm, I'm so in, I love to collaborate. And, you know, one thing um, somebody told me once is like, you know, you, you, they basically said like, you make people like want to do, or you make people work. <laughs> so then I felt bad. So like, I don't ask anymore. Like, cause I feel like I don't want right. to put pressure on people to, to do work, but I'll put it out there right now. Anybody who's listening, you, um, anyone, like if you want to collaborate, let me know. Cause I don't really put it out there anymore unless I'm hundred percent sure, because I don't want people to feel that pressure of like, you know, needing to partner with me, but I right. love, I love working together. Right. I'm the same way. People will say, Oh, let's do something. And then they like, Oh, you really be working though. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, we really try to do this. So, um, yeah. so I appreciate you. Where can people find you, uh, on your social media contact pages, whatever. Yeah. Um, um, Instagram is my most active one um, at practical school psychology. And so I please ask you to follow me, look me up. You know, if you have questions, send them to me. I'm trying to post more often. I just so busy. Sometimes it's like, you know, life. Um, yeah, I get it. I get it. I'm going to start a podcast too. So I'll probably ask you to be on my podcast as well. Okay, um, definitely. I'm down. Yeah. It's going to be the same name, practical school psychology, and that'll be probably in the next month or so that it'll be available. Um, and then on Facebook, I have a practical school psychology Facebook. So I'm just really trying to build it. Um, and so, yeah, those are the best ways to get in contact with me. Okay, definitely. I appreciate you coming through and um, you continue to do what you do, man. And um, thanks for coming by. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and you keep it up too. Definitely. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Oh, yo, yo, we back. Mike Arrington, BU Podcast. Um, Special shout out to 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 my girl Jessica Liscano. It was definitely great meeting her, man. Um, This is the power of social media, man. I met her during the pandemic. Um, I was doing some lives with a couple of other therapists, Brittany Williams, who was one of our past guests. Um, and she tapped in and then we kind of stayed in contact. And then when it was time for me to do this podcast, um, she came through, man, and she had a wealth of, of knowledge, man. And I hope to 
um, work with her in the future, man. She is a warrior in this game. She's very, very knowledgeable. Um, super duper smart, man. Super duper, uh, just amazing. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, you know, we, we rolling, man. I'm doing this podcast. I'm starting to get a lot of the feedback and, and whatnot, man. And I appreciate it all. Um, but <clears throat> some of the feedback has been, um, people want to hear my story too. Um, so I think I will be doing more hot takes and just kind of letting you guys know who I am via my story and my plight. Um, but I wanted to leave with this story and having that conversation with Jessica reminded me of a story of a student I had um, way back in 1990, let's say 98. Um, a young kid, he was sixth grade, a little rough kid. He was in the foster home. Um, he struggled with anger. He struggled with, you know, anxiety. Um, and a lot of it stemmed from, you know, his social economic status, of course, um, didn't have the best clothes. Um, he was a little kid, little, you know, a little runt of a kid, but he was a tough kid, man. Um, kid was from Watts, real tough kid, man. And, um, but our, uh, the kid, he struggled with reading. Reading seemed to be his biggest thing. And so I wasn't a teacher at the time. It was more of a, just an aide. And so, but I noticed that he struggled. He would squint every time we would try to see something from a distance or see something up close. And, um, and so, you know, I took him to the nurse and the nurse kind of gave him an eye test and the boy couldn't see a lick, uh, especially up close. And so from that, he couldn't read. So his kid was sixth grade, could not read a lick, right? Like he couldn't even, you know, phonetically sound out words. And a lot of it stemmed from he couldn't see, right? And so we got that kid some glasses, um, started tutoring him, you know, kind of after school, before school, at lunch at nutrition time. Um, and so the kid went from, you know, basic reading to like fourth grade reading level in a span of like maybe seven, eight, nine months. Right. Um, and then we gave him what the, the KTEA test back then. And um, his comprehension level, when we read it to him, was at 11th grade level. So he knew words. He knew the sound of words. He knew the definition of words because he overcompensated because he couldn't read. But after that, we figured out what the issue was. By the time that kid was in eighth grade, he was in all honors classes with the exception of two classes because um, the kid was exceptional. Um, and he just had to get used to wearing glasses. And, and then, you know, the jokes went from, uh, you can't read to, haha, look at them big thick glasses you got. Right. Which is a, a much easier d- a joke to take than that you can't read. So. Um, I don't know what that kid is doing now, but I know last time I had talked to that kid, he was doing well in high school. Um, I hope that kid is prospering right now, man. I hope that kid remembers me as I remember him, but that's one of the many thousands of stories that you'll probably hear on the BU podcast, um, of different students that I helped over the course of time. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to really get into the fact that I've done a lot of work, man, and starting to really give myself my own flowers, um, I've done a lot of amazing things and um it's time to let the world know that. You know, I'm I've always considered myself like Batman, man. I come in at night, I see the bat symbol, I come in and save the day, and um I always get the blame. I never get the credit. So um I will no longer do that to myself though. So um thank y'all for tuning in, man. BU Podcast, another one in the can, man. We rolling. Easy. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Mm-hmm.